I'm Betsy Reed, and this is The Discomfort Practice, where I talk to creatives, activists, leaders, scientists, and a host of others about discomfort, about the role it's played in their lives, who they are and what they do in the world, and the value of discomfort in helping us move forward as a society. Discomfort is just the edge of your comfort zone, and on the other side are superpowers. So settle yourself in, and let's get uncomfortable. So I'm excited today because I'm sitting here with one of my favorite authors, and I have to admit I'm dorking out a little bit because I am so thrilled to have her here because reading her book really, truly changed my life in the past few months, and I'm sure she hears that a lot. But I have some examples of how that actually looks in my life and some questions for her. So I'm here with Kasia Urbaniak, and she teaches women to eliminate centuries of good girl conditioning. But more than that, she teaches about power. Kasia is the founder and CEO of The Academy, a school that teaches women the foundations of power and influence. Actually, one of my favorite quotes from the book is, the ability to skillfully participate in influential conversations is the key to changing the world as we know it. And don't we need that now? More than ever, on this podcast, I talk a lot about how systems just aren't working. Society doesn't work for most people. Our environment is disintegrating before our eyes and under our feet. And so now is really the time to participate fully in meaningful conversations with as many people as possible. And we need women as part of that. So over the course of nearly 20 years, Kasha has worked as a professional dominatrix, practiced Taoist alchemy in one of the oldest female-led monasteries in China, and obtained dozens of certifications in different disciplines, including medical qigong and systemic constellations. And as I mentioned, she's the author of Unbound, A Woman's Guide to Power, and that came out in 2021. So it's hot off the press, and I highly recommend you read it. Since founding the Academy in 2013, Kasha has taught over 4,000 women to radically increase their power, agency, and influence. Using practical tools, Academy graduates transform their lives by breaking the yoke of good girl conditioning. They step boldly into leadership roles within their relationships, families, workplaces, and wider communities. They become adept in the art of verbal self-defense against bulldozing, bullying, and gaslighting. They make bold, life-changing asks of the people around them in a way that feels good to the person being asked. And again, I'm going to go back to a quote that has actually really been instrumental for me recently in my life, which is every time you ask someone for something, you're offering them a role in your life. And I love that as just a great synopsis of your approach, Kasha, to how to give people a role in your life in a meaningful way. So women who go through Kasha's program can hear no without getting flustered or giving up and use resistance as a way to build intimacy and partnership. So I came across Kasha when a past guest on this podcast, Marilise Stavilliers, recommended her book. And I read it. Before I even finished it, I commanded my sex book club that I started last year to read it. And it truly changed all of our lives to the point where we workshopped it and we've kind of transformed our book club to become more of a, a mistress club. And we can talk about that because there are master groups and it's just about being in our own power and being accountable and having a space to practice a lot of these techniques that Kasha teaches. So we actually have been recommending it to our colleagues, our networks, and I recommended it to a colleague of mine at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership as she was designing a course called Women Leading Change, which is launching in the spring. And she read it and was just so struck by it that she started to actually use it in her own life and then put it on the reading list. So you're on a Cambridge University reading list, and you definitely deserve to be there with you know, a lot of other very important authors and thinkers that will be used by powerful professional women taking this course. So I just wanted to say thank you, and that I'm really looking forward to this conversation because obviously we're at a time in history where more and more people are realizing there's important work to be done together. And we need to unlock all the capacity, the creativity, and the power that we can from as many people as possible in society. And so much of that is about unlocking women's ability to step into their power, to step into these important conversations, to offer their creativity, their innovation, and their full selves to the solutions that we have to come up with to create a society and a planet that really works for everybody. So 
Again, I'm really honored that you're here. Welcome, Kasha. Wow, thank you for that stupendously wonderful welcome. (laughs) I unintentionally give a long one because A, I am always a fan of whoever's on this podcast. That's why they're on here. But also because the discomfort practice, the clue is in the name. So I kind of like to start by presenting guests with who they truly are because it makes most people uncomfortable to hear how actually kind of illustrious and accomplished and impactful they are. And I like to start that way because it kind of gets, gets us in the scene together. It's uncomfortable for most people. So, but well-deserved. I, I loved your biography. So I always ask guests the same first question, which is what's an uncomfortable moment that shaped who you are and what you do in the world? Oh, so many. <laughs> I'd always. say most of them. Well, most of the moments that, uh, that, that shape one's life and destiny and reveal one's path uh, contain a degree of discomfort because it's like, I mean, the discomfort practice is such a great name for that reason. Because it's, there's like two different kinds of discomfort and you can't really tell which one you're experiencing until you move past the peak of it, which is like the kind that violates and the, versus the kind that ushers you into a new state of being. I'll answer your question. I'm like getting mad philosophical with you from the get. Um, Go for it. Go for it. (laughs) Here's one. Um, Humiliated at a spelling bee when I was six and or seven. And part of it is I was raised by bohemian jazz parents who were on tour for the first six years of my life in Europe. So actually, when I started school, I didn't speak English and my teachers didn't know. Wow. And so I was trying to learn a language while trying to learn how to read and spell at the same time. Maybe I was seven, I don't remember. But this was one of these moments where something struck a chord with my mom, who wasn't a PTA kind of mom. She was, you know, she's a scatting jazz singer who like will be, you know, festival with Sting and my dad with Miles Davis, like tour. They don't, they're not, there were no lunch boxes, but she had this, (laughs) she like really felt for me. And she did this thing where Polish is, Polish is my first language. Polish is a very phonetic language. So every word is spelt exactly how it's pronounced. In English, I don't know if like native English speakers understand how bonkers English is with <laughs> words like enough. Are you joking? <laughs> <laughs> Cough? What? Yeah, I know. I know. <laughs> so she, um, she took a notebook and wrote every word for the next spelling bee on a piece of paper, giant piece of paper, and the Polish pronunciation of it, if it was spelled phonetically. And she wallpapered the entire living room with it. So I just lived with it for a month. And it was the first moment that I started understanding that this is is a pretty big deal on a really small example, but that everything needs to be translated. Like what Mm. you say, here is not the same thing ever. And later on in my work and in my life, I saw really clearly that like the way women experience reality, what's being said and what's being heard is not the same thing. The way that people in in positions of authority are experiencing reality is not the same thing. And, And that like, you know, one of the greatest relationship issues that come up in the school have to do with trying to make sense of two mutually exclusive realities, two people who want to go beyond the conflict point of let's agree to disagree, right? That like we are all living and, and that, you know, there is a way to bridge those. There is a step in translation that can meet and link people. And in this case, <laughs> it was my mother showing me the Polish pronunciation of English words in terms of how they're spelled. But it, it made me, it like, it, it was the beginning of, you know, any first generation American knows this, that you're always going to be translating a culture into another culture. It's like a beauty and a sadness and an incredible wisdom in knowing that that's what's always happening. Like Betsy, you're on the other side of the screen and like what you're, what you're hearing and what I'm saying, what I, you know, and the, and the more we regard that there's a bridge to be built, the more we understand that there's this middle space, the better we get at actually having a direct connected experience, which is like the only access to power we have with one another. Ah, well, if you want a bonus answer, you feel welcome to jump in there with another uncomfortable moment that shaped your life. But 
on that note of translating, constantly translating, if anybody's ever been in a relationship with somebody from another culture, this probably feels quite familiar. So I'm interested in hearing, well, probably more areas, more moments of discomfort, but what led you to set up the Academy in 2013? Um, it was not intentional at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, good. This is going to be a good story. <laughs> I, had a, I had a long, I would say, kind of personal private journey with understanding power, being a woman, by this twofold path of being a dominatrix in a, in a dungeon in New York City and using that to, you know, to finance my studies as a Taoist nun. And that was, that was when I first understood how much, first of all, how much power matters, especially women are really squeamish about it because of abuses of power and, and uh, hierarchical power and how love and power work together. And uh, it, I met my future business partner, Ruben Flores, a man who was working in war zones and when we met, we were absolutely fascinated with each other's, with the similarity on our take on what power is. Because when he was negotiating, building field hospitals in Africa with warring clans and uh, people who didn't speak the same languages, uh, he started, we started talking a lot about what a powerful presence means beyond language. What does it mean to you know, feel passionately about building a hospital here or feel passionately about anything and transmit that on a level that is almost more on the animal realm, right? Our bodies. And how strange it is that uh, women are, human women are probably the few species that will give up when attacked, that will collapse uh, yeah. on themselves. You know, uh, so so long. Uh, this is long story short. We became obsessed with this topic, and we were in my apartment in New York City. He was supposed to stay for just you know a brief period of time. Six months later, <laughs> we have dragged in all the people that we know to to be um, to be our guinea pigs in bodily experiments, in poses and role plays and power and dynamics and energetics and. We needed to unveil something together. We needed to uh, understand something. We, we, you know, we asked couples to volunteer for like power dynamics couples therapy. And by the time we had gotten this momentum running, you know, a lot of times he would just be taking notes on what I was doing and I was translating what I had done in the dungeon or in my, on my healing practice into what we were talking about with humans. And then all of a sudden we found ourselves with a batch of hungry students. So... You know, we didn't really want to teach. I didn't really want to teach. I was like, I'll write a book. I should want to write a book about this stuff. This was seven years ago, more. And uh, I was like, okay, let's not do let's not do classes. Let's do a Q and A so that we can gather more experience in how this relates to actual women's lives. And we announced it, and it was like we had enough space for a tenth of the people who signed up. So we did four of them, five of them, and they just turned into classes. Wow. And then the Academy just came from the hunger for what you developed because you just followed the curiosity. And do you believe in fate? The question is, does fate believe in me? <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> wow, we are going to get philosophical. <laughs> philosophical. I can't talk. It's Friday night in Barcelona, and I'm like... <laughs> philosophical. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It's just after dawn in Hawaii. So <laughs> yeah, no, I think that there is a way in which the world continually tries to reorganize itself into a harmonic. And we have the capacity inside our bodies to hear and feel it and align ourselves that way. And it's a constant present moment readjustment. And one of the greatest tragedies is whether it be conditioning or a fixed concept um, we don't attain our desires because we get sidetracked by the vessel which we created for them in our minds. So we're off, like off center and with women, especially, and I want to talk about this today because it's a huge part of the good girl double bind and good girl conditioning. We end up taking 
like best supporting actress roles in our lives. We're not in the center of our universe. And there's a whole misunderstanding around selfishness and selflessness that contributes really negatively to this. Because in this like reassertion of the harmonic of the universe, you know, this like heartbeat that organizes, organizes everything. It's not even that woo woo. It's tides and seasons and, you know, like the rhythm of nature. Yeah, absolutely. Reliable emotional arcs, like and also some of the more metaphysical woo stuff, some of the stuff about like, you know, who you meet and how and when, but you can feel it. Your entire muscular skeletal being has a response. It has a response. It weakens and strengthens in accordance with what it comes in contact with. It is not, it's not that mysterious. It's because we're looking for it in some kind of really, really, really small percentage of intellectualized thinking that it becomes really hard to understand. But it's not that hard to understand (laughs) because your whole body's doing it all the time. And being aligned, being embodied, it ends up being a, a, a clusterfuck of mysteries, like an impossible Rubik's Cube, because it's so damn simple. And it's in that spot where, you know, you're in it and you can pull another human being into it with how you relate to them. And it is only in that state that meaningful influence and power is shared. It's only in that state. Everything else that appears to be influential is a forced violation from which the other person will have to spring back from, from which there will be a rebellion or a cost. So there is really only one job. And the reason I get to use so many words and write books and teach classes is because there's so many not that's, the conditionings, the assumptions, that this incredibly simple thing that could be as simple as breathing which isn't simple or orgasm, which ends up not being simple because of this thing that we are humans. <laughs> yeah. Um, Complicated, complex, all of these things. Yes. The underlying thing is incredibly simple and that's why we keep missing it. Let's talk about the good girl double binds because that was something that I really, obviously, I think every woman who reads your book or goes through the Academy comes in part because that really lands with them. What really landed for me was you talk about the new myth of the independent woman as being, yeah, basically same song, second verse, and how those are both an incredible burden that we need to be freed from in order to be fully embodied and powerful in the world. So just talk about, unpack that good girl double bind and myth yeah, of the independent woman. Versus the, the classic good girl, right? The original version. So the, the, the good girl is modest. She is responsive. She doesn't fall behind. She's not too far ahead. She doesn't outshine people. She doesn't lag. She's polite. She's, her appetites are definitely modest. She's not hungry, horny. She doesn't lust. She doesn't crave, right? She's appropriate in every single scenario. She makes do. She doesn't need anything. She doesn't want it. She doesn't really, she's happy with what she has. She She's makes grateful. no demands. She's so grateful. So like, uh, if you think about the history of women on this planet and you think about the last, you know, millennia, two, three, whatever, definitely the, <laughs> definitely the last thousand years. Up until five minutes ago, the best a woman could ever hope for in terms of fulfilling her own dreams, visions, ambitions, having a voice, expressing herself, the best she could hope for, the best she could hope for was to marry well. That's it. That's it. It's easy to forget that. It's easy to underestimate the impact of that. To marry well. To be marriageable. So we have this, um, am I good enough to be picked, to be loved? Sure, to be married. But all of my destiny, future hopes and dreams not consciously, right? Because there's a, a very few women in our generation that you go like, yeah, my greatest hope is to, you know, marriage is for love, right? Or if, yeah. if, if, right? Everything else, everything else is everything else. The good girl, marriageable, unoffensive, and it's in the air. It means that there's this impossible tightrope that begins to develop. So let me talk about Like, there are women listening to this who are like, I'm not a good girl. 
I'm too much and I'm proud of it. I'm loud. I go after what I want. I don't expect anybody to do anything for me. And, and if you feel that rebellion against this good girl assertion, there's like a twinge of anger to it. Be like, yeah. hell no, I'm an independent woman. I'm an independent woman. Here's the thing about the independent woman and why she's good girl 2.0. She's also not a burden. She also doesn't ask for anything. She also, she can have anything she wants so long as she gets it herself. And the independent woman is doing everything. She is the man, the woman, and the stereotypical past version of gender. She is the mom. She is the friend. She is available to everyone when she asserts her boundaries. It's, um, it's, a. Uh, it's not a natural thing. It's an enforceable thing. And when she's hurt or tired, it's not only that nobody comes to her aid, nobody can even see it. Even yeah. if she says, help me, it doesn't register. The, 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 the bodies of people around her do not regard her as someone who ever really needs help, is ever really in danger. I can so relate might- to this. <laughs> say, I'm sick, I need help. And they'll be like, oh, and no response. And, and uh, being the superhero, she gets very quickly surrounded by people who need her. They don't feed her. And sometimes those people who, who are kind of like receiving from her all the time, they have the potential to be givers, but it never locks in. And this is what people don't understand about power and power dynamics. You cannot see how to serve how if you look at somebody uh, power dynamics makes it so that someone who's in the dominant position their weaknesses are not seen which for the structure of power can be very useful but it also means that people looking up can't see the way to contribute so uh, the the good girl and the independent woman have a lot in common and neither get their needs met. And oftentimes they end up superficially being at war with each other. Yeah, because they see themselves as being opposite ends of the spectrum and they're actually doing exactly the same thing in terms of power. Yeah. The, one, the, one, the woman who's working her ass off is pissed at the damsel in distress because she's getting everything, you know, she's getting what she needs, but in a backwards, upside down kind of way. And the damsel in distress feels intimidated by the independent woman who seems to have her shit together but both are starving. Both are starving. And the ecology around them for both of them is sapping their confidence, their power, their energy. And um, the, the whole myth that any man is truly self-made, that you know we all need to be John Wayne, pull ourselves by our own bootstraps. Basically the Kool-Aid that the independent woman is drinking, that she doesn't see that John Wayne and all of those male figures have an incredible in, in largely invisible, but hardcore support structure around them, whether it's the constant messages that tell them who they are and why they're valuable, the training they get to be valued for what they do, not how they look or who they are, whether it's the boys club, whether it's wives, it's the whole ecosystem around men, which also, if we like really look at that, has its own horrendous effects on men who suffer even if they're in the entitled position. And now even that's crumbling. But (laughs) if we're just focusing on good girl and good girl 2.0, in both cases, there is a lack of ability, lack of opportunity to fully process the breadth of emotion, need, desire. You cannot embody power if you're holding back, if you're not feeling what you're feeling. You can't be embodied if you're trying not to feel something. Um, And the biggest thing is those support networks that men have inherited, women actually need to create for themselves and for each other. And the way to begin doing that is by tapping into what's needed and wanted so we can begin collaborating and building that mycelium network, beginning to build that just for ourselves. Because you know the 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 other idea about it is we're going to change the world, like the the the, the dark side of the ar- activist archetype is I'm starving and screaming about what's lacking in the world, and what works better is I'm fed and overflowing and showing you, and sharing with you, the nourishment that I have so much of, 
And this is the place where women really need to start looking at themselves as the center of the universe, not the supporting actress, but the main character and seeing where the, you know, the good girl conditioning and the independent woman create a real tightrope smush. You, you can't be too loud or too quiet. You can't be too stupid or too smart. You can't be too sexy or too sexless. You can't be too, and it's just, it's, it's a no-win game with no oxygen. Oh my God, that hit. It's a no-win game with no oxygen. Yeah, because I, I circulate quite often around the activist world. You know, I sort of have led campaigns and, and been an activist since a very young age. I'm about to do a resilience boot camp workshop for a festival in the UK that's about change and creativity and being inspired. And it is because we, yeah, they're starving and screaming rather than coming from a place of abundance. And my aim with that is to help people learn, well, boundaries and self-care and prioritizing it as if you're a soldier, you make sure you're well-fed and in shape and well taken care of and, you know, warm and wearing the right clothes and have the right weapons. You don't just go out there and think, I'll be a better soldier if I'm starving and martyred and don't do anything for myself. It's bizarre. That's a, that's a really incredible metaphor because if you look at even the financing of the military and you look at like where resources go, how much of it goes to housing soldiers, feeding soldiers. It's a huge, yeah. like, like it's building this. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you want soldiers who are going to be fighting machines and able to function and think clearly. So yeah, I find it bizarre and I agree. I see this so much in my female friends where... There is this idea that, you know, if you're not martyring yourself, if you take a moment to do something for yourself, get a pedicure, go for a massage, if you have kids in particular, you're somehow doing something that takes away from other people. And I'm so fucking tired of that. And because I am at a stage in my life where I'm, I'm a woman in my 40s who is not going to have children. So I get to sort of construct my life around myself and make myself the central character. And that's been a big piece of work for me over the past few years because there's so much deconditioning to do. But it's interesting to see how, you know, things like having a family just kind of suck people back into the conditioning. And there's so much guilt around taking care of yourself and playing a leading role because all of these systems and structures are in place to keep things in the status quo and, you know, embracing friction. And you say, never move faster than you can feel. And you talk about friction a lot. And you also talk about well, I think this is a good time to actually dive into power dynamics. And you, you talk a lot about submissive and dominant. The way you explain submissive and dominant is it's control over the flow of attention and power. And so, well, I'll let you explain it way more eloquently than I can, but submissive is attention in and dominant as attention out, right? So yeah, yeah. talk about that because the way you explain it, I thought was just so clear and so not tied to, you know, BDSM. It's just a brilliant explanation of power. Yeah, you know, since we've been talking about the good girl, I want to link it from that. So, uh, one of the things that happens and is still happening, it still happens. I thought maybe times have changed in terms of boys and girls, but it, it hasn't really. The more I see, there's a tendency to reward girls at a moment where their attention or in a way that brings attention to them and reward boys in a way that it's when their attention is out. So look at how pretty Mary is. Look at how lovely her dress is. Is she getting fat? Positive or negative attention is a psychological reward that lets us know we belong. So positive or negative attention is a huge, precious resource for us as we're developing. Belonging is more important than belonging well, just belonging. So when you're getting hits of attention, when your attention's on yourself, you exist when your attention is inward. With boys, it's like, look what Billy did. Billy scored a goal. Billy got into a fight. Billy built a fort. Positive or negative attention. The moment, the moment boys get attention, it tends to be when their attention is outward. It would be weird in our world to give boys hits of attention when their attention's on themselves. Look at the tie you're wearing or look at the little jacket, like squirmy, weird. We don't do that kind of thing. Yeah. This is one of yeah. the things that's constant invisible training. Constant invisible training. Okay, so what does this have to do with power dynamics? What does this have to do with good girl, independent woman? What's going to happen is in a moment of conflict or interaction, we're going to default to the state which we most identify with. 
which means you and I, Betsy, have a moment of conflict and you're, you're putting attention on me. What am I going to do? I'm not going to, I'm going to put attention on myself. And what does that look like? That looks like the freeze in sexual assault situations. That looks like what we're going to do the moment that there's a, a rise in pressure, a rise in stimulation. We're going to go, what am I doing wrong? Or what am I doing right? What am I doing? What's happening to me? How did I create this? Right? Me, 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 me. Right? And that split second is a very dangerous one. The default for most men, at least for a split second, even soft feminine, like, you know, it has to do with which gender you were conditioned as. In that split second, somebody who was raised as a boy is going to put their attention out. What are you doing? What are you saying? What are you, what, what are you doing here? Right. Okay. Yeah, Why does this yeah. matter? This matters because in the animal kingdom, this is how we, this is how we identify who's in charge, whoever's attention's out. And everybody who's following has their attention in. And it's important to know how to both lead and follow. It's important to know how to uh, be in the dominant and the submissive state of attention. It's important to know how to do both. It's important to know how to talk and listen. It's important to know how to give and receive, right? Yeah. It, there is no better or worse. What I'm concerned with is in conflict, the default determines where the interaction goes who's the doer and who's the one done to. And it only takes breaking the habit in those few seconds. So like the re big revelation was the degree to which power dynamics are structured by where attention is and our attention habits. So the good girl and the independent woman, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, it, somebody can be looking very angry or full of energy or, and still be in the submissive state of attention. Somebody can be very soft and in the dominant state of attention. It really has to do mainly with where your attention is in or out and halfway, halfway is what we do a lot of the time. And halfway leads to a incomplete link between people. Halfway leads to self-conscious behavior. So if you, if I, my attention is fully on you as I'm speaking to you and I'm watching you and seeing how the words land and I'm seeing uh, there's something that didn't quite land. So I'm going to use a few more words here and oh, now it's sinking and I can feel it. Right. Yeah. I don't have any bandwidth left over to be self-conscious. I'm paying attention to you. I'm leading you. And if I'm listening to you and I'm in a submissive state, I'm really listening to you. I'm only really checking in to see how those words are landing and what's happening inside of me as I'm listening. I'm not really concerned with anything else. And it's, you know, here's the thing is in terms of like the structure of power and power dynamics and connectivity and influence, the greatest sexual experiences, the greatest conversations, even with strangers that last until dawn, those great, great, great meaningful interactions all have the same quality which is fluid switching between dominant and submissive states that are pretty complete. I'm like really listening. And then I'm really talking and watching you when I'm talking. Same with sex. Like it's and in that fluidity, it's, it, this is the paradox is when power dynamics are at their most extreme and most powerful with this fluid switching. That's when people remark that there's equality. That's yeah. when they're saying there's no power dynamic. People talk about power dynamics when they're not working, when they're two doms, right? Both attention out. You did this. No, you did this. You did this, right? Or both subs. I'm suffering. No, I'm suffering. No, I'm suffering, right? Like when those, when those dynamics start collapsing, it's, it's, then it's two mutually exclusive realities like the spelling bee with no <laughs> translation. There's no connectivity. You, 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 you can both win your arguments in separate rooms and be alone forever. There's no transmission of power and there's no synergy because the best part of, of power dynamics and connection, right? Like it's so funny because in our world, the world, the words power dynamics have this dark quality and connection yeah. has this light, fluffy quality. They're the same damn thing. I was about to remark that. It's like, they're oh, the same oh. thing. I keep thinking I, about this. Yeah. I'm teaching, a, I'm teaching seniors in college here, fourth years, leadership and negotiation. And I'm trying to figure out how to teach them followership and leadership without just telling them to read your damn book. Because <laughs> it is, it's the, the, where attention is, where the dance is and how powerful that is. But it, 
you put it in a way that just feels so natural. I'm just like, oh, yes, I get that. When I feel connected, I am paying attention to somebody as they speak, and then it's my turn, and I'm really focused on them as I speak. And putting that into the dominant submissive, it just makes sense to me. Like my body just goes, that's it. It, That feels like flow. That feels like connection. That feels... That feels like a dance I want to be part of rather than trying to always be in this fake submissive role that I've been programmed yeah. to be in as a woman yeah. Or, yeah. or this yeah. fake dominant role that's trying to pretend to be masculine. Yeah. And, and rather than focusing on deconditioning those things, actually just focusing on energy in, energy out feels really light. It feels very unfraught with baggage, actually. Do you find that with your students? Or well, do they respond better to that language? The the thing that's kind of that's blowing my mind about Unbound, the book, is because I mean it took it took seven years to write for a reason. Wow. So what we were doing, when you say you know how students respond to language, up until up until the pandemic, pretty much, and the origin of the school was in rooms with humans, right? In rooms with humans, and our classes always were very small, very intense, long. We had male volunteers come in. We did role plays. And, you know, if I use the right or wrong language or uh, explain something, you know, it didn't matter because we were in the room and each woman would go up and she would practice making an outrageous request of a man or of a woman, but making an outrageous uh, or, or, or sharing a truth, right? And she would practice attention in and attention out. And she would think she'd be doing it, but we would all be able to see that she wasn't. And then something, some, some like emotion would drop, some new thing would happen, and her attention would finally reach. And you would see his body start to melt, even if she's being it like uh, insane in air quotes or outrageous. <laughs> feel good. The whole room was like, ah, oh, yeah, feels good. And the the we, we we get we get we get volunteers from all walks of life who are not necessarily pro women having whatever they want, but you would see this guy's body melt. Huh. It didn't matter. And so so you know the 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 writing of the book had a lot to do with. Can we take the arc of the emotional and felt experience of a long intensive class that, that gets women to the other side using only words on a page to create that experience? Why there's so many exercises in the book? Because the, the thing is, it's like, what are, it's like a woman who has a powerful erotic presence, who's powerful, right? She walks into a room. You know it before you can describe it. Once you start describing it, you don't know if you have the right words. You just know it when you see it. You know it when you, f- you just know it when you see it. And that there's nothing more powerful than that kind of consensus in terms of education. You're mm. in a room like, oh, the magic happened. And the magic happened. She like, she went in inward to a submissive state of attention and spoke her truth from her deepest self. And we all felt it. And it wasn't vague and it wasn't, you know, f- hard to define. It was evident. It was just evident. It was evident when she was trying to do it, but wasn't doing it. And same thing with attention out. And, you know, all of us wanted to make her dreams and wishes come true. And all of us felt like <laughs> under the spell of her desire. And all of us felt like the, the, the deepest part of her body was commanding the entire room. And we were happy to surrender to the authority of that passion, lust, power. And so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's kind of absurd to have written a book about it. And it's even more absurd to be on interviews talking about the talking of the talking and yet who here hasn't as a woman felt themselves put on the spot asked an inappropriate question uh be made uncomfortable found themselves putting that attention doubling down on it going even further inward freezing questioning themselves having a thousand words in their minds in a minute but no capacity to speak and then later on felt like that was a horrible act of self-betrayal. Clear articulation of the default state of attention for women and what we can do about it. Really simple, right? So it's like, if we hadn't been domesticated as humans and you know, men and women domesticated differently, different people domesticated differently, if we hadn't been domesticated, we wouldn't need to talk about this because as, 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 as young children, as, as 
humans coming into this planet. There are certain things that are natural for us to ask for what we want, whether it's realistic or not, to uh, to express. To, you know the the the, the kind of like un, unself conscious expression of human being. <laughs> you know? Yeah, and as babies, we don't question asking for or demanding what we want. We just know that we're hungry, or we want that thing, that toy, or our mothers. And yeah, it is interesting. What's possible that starts going away once we start domesticating our own desire and our own consciousness. Like that's not appropriate. Possible? That's not convenient. That's going to burden others. Uh, how many? If I asked, even if I just started, okay, we're starting a class right now. Ready? First assignment: write down all of the desires you can think of that might hurt the feelings of somebody in your life, just to see them. That alone would be twenty minutes of crying because it's like it's <laughs> we don't look at those things. The domestication is so good that we don't even look at those things. It's not even. We, we, we have a, a sacred private space within ourselves. We can confess things to ourselves, but we don't because the domestication is so powerful. Oh, yeah. You, you talk about like start a desire journal. And I struggled with that. I've started it. And it's just, it's so uncomfortable to admit I have desires. And I'm, I realized, and this is always a shock when you've been doing the work, quote unquote, to realize I didn't have a fucking clue what my desires were. Like I really had to dig for that one and just, it didn't come naturally. That was really hard for me. And it made me really go, oh my God, this is so deeply conditioned. But I have to say, you know, if you struggle to put all of your practice in writing, you have managed to do it in a beautiful way because it has had an impact on no doubt all the people you're doing interviews with right now. But for me personally, and the people who I've been reading the book with and it's excitement because it really gives us something we've needed. And I have to thank you for that, but also congratulate you because you've managed to translate quite a powerful alchemy into the written words. And, and also I have a request from a sex book club in Barcelona, Spain. Could you come run a program in Spain one of these days? Cause we really want to do this in person. <laughs> <laughs> Please, please, please. Yeah. yeah, we have to. Yeah. I mean, I'm not teaching live classes yet, but I can't, I can't wait. Yeah. Because we were like, maybe we could get her to do a Zoom course with us. And then I was like, hell no, let's ask what we really want, which is get over here and let's do a course. Because it, it's that magic of being in person. I think we all appreciate that so much because of the pandemic and having not had it. But yeah, it sounds like there is a certain element of alchemy in that room. And as I was asking you about the language, you know, as I was talking about my followership, leadership, subdom, conundrum. I have a problem because, you know, I started off when I was teaching by talking about yin and yang energy, which in a lot of ways is more accurate. And when you're teaching in a room, you can get away with teaching energetics because you can take somebody's hand and you can have them feel the, repel the repelling and attractive force, right? You can have them feel electromagnetic energy. It's easier to start talking deeper. I was yeah. like, yin and yang, yin and yang. And I, at one point I looked at the room and I'm like, it, it, they are looking at me like a bunch of zebras. Like, <laughs> <laughs> they're like, what is that? Yeah. I, so then I was like, I was like, all right, riding crop, dominatrix boots, dominant, yang, yang dominant. Yeah, and it makes sense. The yin yang symbol, like there is, there is ultimately uh, the core of the dominant experience is being submissive. Why? Because if you're in a dynamic with a submissive, their body is the ultimate rule of law. If you're, let me give you a BDSM metaphor. If you're spanking somebody and you spank them too lightly, it's going to feel like too light a massage. It's irritating. If you spank them a little too hard, their body shuts shutting down. Just like a massage is too hard. You start tensing up, shutting down. And the right, the just the right spot that releases that energy the dominant who's in control actually has no goddamn say of what that right spot is. So the, the core of the authority, right? If you're, a, if you're a, the king of the universe or a boss and, and you're working with people, the, absolute, the place where you absolutely have to surrender to is the reality of where their skill sets live and where they're at, what they understand, what they don't. Like you can't, you're a terrible leader if you disconnect from that, if you're not connected to the reality of where they are, who they are, what they're bringing to the table, what they're not bringing to the table, what they're not understanding. So, you know, like, yeah, I mean, same thing with submissive. They're, the core of that is the ultimate authority. <laughs> you know? 
Like, uh, no, I, there's no say there. It's it's ultimate the ultimate line. Because that really, it starts to get us to a point of real clarity, I think, on the power of submissiveness, because there is such a negative connotation. It's like it's completely passive and you just like get steamrolled or whatever. But what I really loved about how you explain this and how you teach this is just, yeah, that power of you are so comfortable and focused on what you desire and so open to receiving it. I thought, oh my God, that just gave me tingles actually, because it's so powerful. And that's something that I'm working on getting comfortable with because it is so powerful to also be in more in my feminine and to allow people to take a role of taking care of me or of allowing them to do things for me and giving up that independent woman idea. And it's just delicious. It's, I, I am not exhausted. I get lovely things from people who are playing a beautiful role in my life. You know, they cook me dinner or they, you know, plan things that we can go on together or whatever. And it's just like, oh, my life is twice as rich and half as much effort because I have been playing with this dynamic. And it's just such a gift to yourself, but also a gift to other people. And that's a point you make about the role of, you know, giving other people a role in your life. Oh, we've got my bells. You always know what time it is. Can we talk about the the art of no, because that's something where I know we don't have forever with this interview, but I really want to get to that because it's so powerful. And basically for me, the synopsis of that is if you're not afraid of no, you can ask for anything and you might even get it. So talk about the art of playing with no. The desired comfort with no is usually too small. I want everyone listening to this to wrap their brains And being around the idea that you can not just be okay with no, but prefer no. And this is not in a consent violation kind of way. Prefer, not just prefer, but get really turned on, excited. Just like you are teaching people to get turned on about discomfort, get really welcome it. Get really, really, really into resistance of others. Other people resisting. Other people's no. So first thing. No is devastating to many, 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 many people. No is doubly devastating to many, 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 many women. So much so that many women don't hear no a lot in their lives. And check if you're a person who does not hear a lot of no. Because usually what that means is you're not even asking anywhere near the boundary of the riches that are available to you from your community and the people around you. Because you're not hitting that border wall. You're and nowhere near it. If you're not hearing no, if you're not hearing no, people, one, probably don't feel safe to tell you the truth. Two, you're not even going there. You're not even going anywhere near uh, making use of collaborating with and inviting people to use their greatest gifts, skills in a synergetic collaborative way for the benefit of what you are tapping into as a desire. So why would it be so devastating? Why would we avoid it? And there are studies around this. Women avoid no far more than men. We talked about the default state of attention, right? Tension, conflict, stimulation, nervousness, attention on self. If you hear the word no while your attention is on yourself, you will make a link that the no is not to what you're asking for. The no is to you as a person, as an individual. So it will feel like murder. It'll feel like homicide. It'll feel like death. It'll feel cringy. It'll feel like it's hurting you, your attention. And because we are trained to have our attention on ourselves, the moment we see evidence or even the beginning of a no, attention defaults to us, back to us. And whatever ensues in the following one to three seconds feels like a, a stab wound. Now, what's happening on the other side? The other, the other person is having an experience where they're hearing, witnessing some of your desire. They're feeling this, this resistance rise up in themselves that they have no control over, right? They feel, they, most people don't say no to mess with us. It's, it's like, it's actually quite hard to arrive at the point of saying no. So what's happening is they're hearing a request. They're, they're witnessing our desire and they do not feel capable of handling it or retreating from it and are brave enough to tell us so. And the moment they watch us die as a result of that, what happens? They feel punished for telling the truth. 
till they stop. Yeah, or or they, they, they you get a lot of false yeses. You, you start getting a lot of like, okay, yeah, sometimes sure sounds great. You get a lot of like yeah. uh, un, yeah. unengaged, you know, lots of things start happening, especially long term in relationships. But um, short term, short term, in that moment, in that personal interaction, the worst part is breaking the bond of attention for both parties. So mm-hmm. you, if you were asking, if you were asking. And somebody is presenting resistance, you keep your attention on them, stay curious. And this takes a little bit of practice. You don't snap the attention back. Because the other thing that happens from the, per, from the side of the person who's being asked is they feel that attention drop. So like you're really interested in them and paying attention to them until they start telling you what's really going on. And then you disappear, you go into your own pain and hurt. Yeah. I am exaggerating this micro moment, but because it happens so many times in both subtle and non-subtle ways, it starts forming a very deep pattern where we're afraid because we think it's about us. It has nothing to do with us, really. They're having their own experience and we're choosing to abandon them at a moment where they're experiencing the most tension. Here's the thing. This is, yeah. this is why no is really exciting. No is really, really exciting because people say no people that resistance rise up in service inside of themselves to protect something they care about. So it doesn't come up for no reason. It comes up because they think something they care about is at risk, right? So it could be something you respect or don't respect. It could be their private time. It could be their feeling of pride or authority. It could be some deep, tender love, whatever it is. It's something that they've imbued with their life or something they care about, something that's tender. And this is why this is why this next move that I that I want to talk about has to be done with curiosity and a degree of skill. Otherwise, it will feel like a consent violation. What you want to do is you want to find out the thing that that no is protecting. You do not want to apply force here. You don't want to go. Why yeah. not? Right? Because yeah. that you want to you want to honor and protect their no and earn enough of their um, trust. To find out what's what is it that they care about that was important enough for them to see no, say no. And why do we want to do this? Once you get to a space where you have two desires on the table and there's approval of both desires, the idea that only one can happen or that only one can be fulfilled starts going away and a synergy starts being created between the two. The yes that gets formed or what the yes is to is a higher thing that feels both even better. It's even better than getting a yes. If you get a yes, it's great, sure, well-trodden road. You don't really know if the other person is feeding your desire or getting the meaty synergy of their desire connecting with yours. With no, you do. And like a really easy, easy uh, metaphor, actually from which this arose was the realization that like when I was doing domination sessions, Having a submissive that agreed to everything really, really, really well was so quickly became really boring because it's like, yeah. I'm doing all the work, like a machine, you know? Yeah. Neil, what up? What the hell's going on? That I would have to like really find and almost invent ways in which they were resisting. Your chin came up too slow. Are you being stubborn? <laughs> you know? Wow. Well, yeah, because there was no tension it. otherwise, right? There was no them. Yeah. There was no room. People who think about control and power and like want everybody to consent forget that if you actually were the puppet master of everybody, you would be doing all of the work and you would be receiving none of the contribution. The co- contribution comes from the other side of resistance. It comes from what's only theirs to bring to your table. And the no is the table. Like <laughs> the yes is not the yeah, yes is great, sure, but it's so Mm, it sounds like there's yeah even in submission there can be resistance but also there it's a dance you keep talking about this in a way that just it's so clearly a dance of back and forth and not abandoning yourself and just saying yes to everything yeah it's just i'm still wrapping my head around it but it's it it fascinates me because then that creates that beautiful chemistry that then obviously creates creative uh, energy, creative tension, erotic tension. And that's a beautiful thing. That's a really incredible thing. 
on all of those fronts. And yeah, without a little bit of resistance, it's just bland. I mean, you know, friction is how babies are born. It's all, you know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's you know, the, 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 the differences between us are what, what creates the third. It creates the next, all creation is based on it. It's like one, two, three, like it's, and, 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 uh, you know, in a really simple way, um, we can experiment with no, right? We can we can just like see what it's like to make an ask and witness the resistance, keep the attention out, get curious, stay with it a little bit, see what comes up. I so my book club, we have made this a challenge where we've all been trying to get more no's. So I have a target of getting a hundred no's to podcast guest invitations because then of course I'm motivated to just keep inviting people and it's so exciting when people say yes, like you, because yeah. The no's don't even matter. Yeah, and then you can celebrate every no that you get as a victory and teach your body, even on a somatic level, to continue going for. Yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, it's hard to take it personally because these people don't even know me. So when it's sort of like people who are busy or people who are a big deal or whatever, if they just don't reply to my email or my DM on Instagram or whatever, I'm like, it's not me. They don't even know me. So it's, it's easier yeah. to learn not to take it personally and then wire it into my system as something that has nothing to do with me and is just like part of the game. You know, it's just like- That's true, but never underestimate a woman's capacity to use any information against herself and create a self-attack story out of anything at all because you could oh, also yeah. just be- There's a lot of ways I could see, you know, I don't want to take the, the victory away from what you're doing by being- Oh no, I have bad days. I have bad days. So thank you for saying that so that I can tell people like, that yesterday, you know, when like the seventh person hadn't even responded to me because it's, it's, uh, it's so hard to not even get a response. Like it's a no, but it's just like, is it a no? Is it that I'm just not important enough or like, uh, yeah. And then you make up, you fill in the story that comes from you. And it is about like, am I not enough? Am I rejected? It's incredibly triggering. But it's so useful to know it and to see it and experience it because now I'm conscious of it. And it comes from seeking the know. So you talk about women finding their power and using it well. And I'm really interested in what your vision is for what does that mean? What does women using their power well do for the world? Because obviously, like, we all have to change our individual world in order to change the bigger systems and, and the world collectively. So what does that look like? The first thing I think is really important to tackle is the sequence of events or the separate separation between making your world and making the world a better place. I understand that logistically there is like making your home and your relationships nicer. And like, then there's like fundraising and like helping those constructs though, though that, that separation is, is it's, it's a modern construct. It's not, it's not like a real thing. It is a real thing if you're uh, talking about writing in your calendar, must crowdfund for this versus must water the plants. Earlier, I spoke about how our bodies are a barometer inside of which we can feel when we are in a harmonic with like all there is <laughs> or harmonic with our desire. The, the signal that comes up inside of oneself that you can call desire doesn't come isn't made by us it comes through us like you don't really have a say in what you want you don't have a say in those signals they just speak instead of goals socially driven measurable results what i really think regardless of changing your world changing the world what's important is to turn everything upside down and inside out and what I mean is like, right now we live a lot of top down, head to body. This diet might be good for me. It's keto, it's vegan, it's this, it's this, it's this, right? Flipping that upside down means pussy, guts first, womb first, before, then like upside down. It, and inside out is the same thing, right? Like your world starts being shaped by what's happening from inside. And, 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 and outward. I love using the, my fantasy about the first woman who had a baby while she had a job. Like I'm imagining this woman who went to her boss and said, I am pregnant and I would like to keep my job. 
and I would like to continue receiving a paycheck, but I would, will not be coming into work when I have the baby and for a while afterwards, and I would continue receiving a paycheck. And then afterwards, I would like to return to the same. And like, we have the words maternity leave now, but once that was an outrageous request, like yeah. unthinkable, unfathomable, what? We're going to do what? What? And that, that woman, you could think of her as incredibly selfish and also crazy. Like, that's just crazy. <laughs> Are you kidding me? Right. But like the most outrageous desire, completely selfish ends up becoming like a policy platform, something that we all understand because we now bottom up in our heads, have the words maternity leave and can talk about it in the brain, maternity leave, maternity leave, not so crazy. Starts out absolutely insane feeling. Inside <laughs> out, top down. Now tell me, did she change her life? Did she change the world? Is there a difference between the two? The main difference is if we start looking at things from inside out and upside down, we start, start flipping those things, then we have embodied humans making decisions that even surprise ourselves. Like as we go step by step, what is the world going to look like tomorrow? Step by step. And this is the time we're in right now is actually really great for this. Everything sucks. Nobody's listening. Everything's <laughs> All hell. Structures are disintegrating. Faith is being lost in a lot of structures. And it's very painful, destabilizing. It can be debilitating, depressing, paralyzing. And it's also phenomenal because the only way forward that works, and people can check this with themselves, is the inside out, upside down, step-by-step -step way. And this is also a time in which those kind of unreasonable desires have a chance of surfacing if we're willing to listen because the competition sucks. Like the idea. <laughs> Yeah, we're all gonna we're all gonna be you know tech billionaires from a startup or the idea that we're all going to like i don't know the, a lot of those well-trodden paths are now in question where <laughs> whether it's whether, whichever path it is whether it's like the saintly or the celebrity or the, the like we're questioning everything yeah. yeah so so the inside the inside feel that develops into the outside real has less competition than ever and more space and it is give it that if we give it that yeah because i we think build a panic i like that inside out methodology and metaphor because that's essentially what i mean but i feel like i kind of try to pretty it up for people who might not be into the woo woo interbeing interconnected but i mean if they're listening to this podcast they know by now that this is what i talk about so yeah it's about listening to yourself and not necessarily going to change yourself and change the world it's just about listening to yourself and then bringing that up from the root up outward into the world and strange things will start to happen weird crazy good things but right now is the time to be unpredictable because we have to reinvent invent afresh systems that actually work and we don't know what those look like because we don't know what those look like because we can't rely on the way that things have been so i guess the only secure place to be is to find that knowing and to listen to yourself and to dive inside and start finding your areas of discomfort, right? The areas where you're like, that stings. I can't handle the no. Well, maybe you can. You just need to practice. It's practicing discomfort. That's why I love this as a lens for the conversations I have, because you're talking about getting uncomfortable and then getting comfortable, right? It's sort of getting practicing discomfort to then get used to how that feels that yeah, that living from the center claiming comfort where where there's potential for it but doesn't exist yet like claiming yeah. it it's, yeah. it's like spreading the basis of comfort <laughs> through discomfort yeah exactly like yeah it's i talk about expanding your comfort zone it's where your superpowers lie so a couple final questions what excites you about the future because we've talked about you know things are kind of a shit show out there so what yeah, excites I, you i wouldn't say excited i wouldn't say i'm excited <laughs> I mean, I'm feeling all the, I'm feeling, I'm feeling what everyone else is feeling. Uh, I would say I feel mystified and deeply curious. I don't, I feel also privileged to be in a moment in time where the future is hard to predict. Like the first, this, the, 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 the panic of like, holy fuck, my entire life might not, I didn't even realize I was building a narrative 30 years into the future that was going to look a certain way. And it's, it's probably not going to be that. So I guess the closest thing to being really excited about something is like, I have no idea what season three or season four of this life show is going to be like. And that's, that's a cliffhanger <laughs> I didn't see coming. Like, I had no idea that it was going to be that. 
I thought the apocalypse might happen, but that it would be more like The Walking Dead and not like this slow and boring and uncertain. (laughs) It's a drag and people are acting weird and people are losing their shit and other people are just tired. And yeah, Yeah. no, that's a, that's a really good answer. Cause I realized that's a, some people do have excitement about the future. I just feel relieved that now we all realize that nothing is certain. I feel really relieved to be like, huh. Yeah. relieved of the burden of certainty that doesn't really exist <laughs> actually. And we're all in it together. That's the biggest relief is like, wow. So is there any final thought you would like to leave people with? I think, um, I think I said it, but it's, it has to do with now being a really good time to secretly nurture irrational and outrageous and strange and surreal and unexpected desires, like nurse them, hush them, hold them, keep them close not worry so much about like making them happen because it feels like right now is like a really good time to let some of those stranger, more unexpected internal energies be nursed. I love that. And I'm going to do that. I'm going to definitely write that down as a quote, put it on social media and try to live it for a while. Yeah. It's a time to just be in the unknown, pregnant with the desires that you didn't even know you had maybe. Oh, gosh, I love that. I have loved this chat. I could do this for hours, but I know that it is now time probably for your second cup of coffee and it is time for me to shut down my computer on the other side of the world. But (laughs) I'd love to have you back. I would love to hear in six months or a year what wild and crazy things have happened as a result of you putting your desires out into the world and of helping other people to step into that, women to step into their desires and their power because crazy shit's going to happen and it's going to be fun to watch. Yeah. So thank you yeah. for your time. Thank you so much for what you do in the world, what you put out there by just following the path that you were supposed to follow. Thank you so much. Thanks for getting uncomfortable with me. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave me a review wherever you listen to podcasts and head over to the Discomfort Practice Patreon page. For the cost of a cup of coffee once a month, you can become a contributor and help us to produce this podcast and reach new people with the idea that discomfort is just the edge of change, the edge of our superpowers, and the edge of changing the world for the better. Thanks to my wonderful team who helped me produce this podcast, to Thomas Sheffer for the original music, Katrina Affleck for the original artwork, and to my co-producer Spencer Rausch. Let's all stay uncomfortable.